and this season of the Making It in Nashville podcast is sponsored by Range Urgent Care. Range has a very special offer for all business owners and honestly anyone in Nashville. So please stick around to the end of this ad to learn more about that sponsorship. But first, we want to tell you why we love Range Urgent Care specifically for our small business. As a small business owner, it can be really expensive to maintain a traditional healthcare plan for you and your employees. And this is where Range Urgent Care, an Asheville-based clinic, can help really make a difference. With their business membership plan, you can give you and your employees the peace of mind and help protect them and their financial futures by giving them a place to go for medical care and avoid a potentially life-changing emergency room bill. The great thing is is that an employee membership is just $45 a month per employee, and it includes unlimited urgent care visits that cost $0. These visits include services like x-rays, flu shots, and even prescriptions from Range's in-house pharmacy. The membership also includes free virtual visits for those more mild complaints such as colds, rashes, UTIs, so that your employees don't have to leave their home to get checked out by a medical professional, which is pretty important during the current pandemic. Their employer portal makes it easy to manage your employee roster and invoices from wherever you are, and their business memberships can scale to the size of your business. With two locations, one on Merriman Avenue in Asheville and the other in Black Mountain, they make it very convenient as an option for any Asheville local business. All right, so maybe you're not a business owner or perhaps a corporate membership is just a little bit outside of reach for you and your business today. Range can still help. They offer a wide variety of other memberships, including family and individual memberships. And you don't even need to be a member to visit Range Urgent Care as they are also in network with most major insurances and offer affordable and transparent flat rate visits. And now for the special offer. Just for the listeners of the Making It in Nashville podcast, Range is offering a free first month of their annual membership. And that's any membership, whether it's business, professional, family, as Sarah said, all of them will get you your free first month uh, visit making it in Asheville.com forward slash range to learn more about this very special offer and more about the subscription plans. Again, that's making it in Asheville.com forward slash range for a free first month in any annual membership. Thanks so much for joining us, Christina and David. Um, I'd love it if you could just tell us a little bit about what's going on in your world right now, this week, today. Um, and of course, tell us, you know, who you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's a busy, crazy time. Um, and I'm David Ackley. I'm one of the co-founders of Ginger's Revenge. And I'm Christina Hall Ackley, the other co-founder of Ginger's Revenge. Yeah, we're uh, we're in the business of selling beer, um, so that's, that's and not just any beer. Yeah, alcoholic ginger beer, one of the only uh, breweries in the country that specialize in this type of product. Um, it's naturally gluten free, and we like to think it's delicious as well. <laughs> um, yeah, the the past six or seven months have been pretty crazy with this pandemic. Um, mm affecting us both as a business and personally. Um, but uh, the, the world seems to be picking up um, with bars and restaurants reopening again. We're, we're starting to uh, increase our production. So we're grateful for the way things are going. Yeah. 
it's it's been really wild. I mean, to go from everything to be completely shut down and trying mm-hmm. to take all the inventory that we had and um, essentially try to like freeze it and try to make sure that we didn't have any beer go bad to now to now when you know, people are shopping more at grocery stores because they're staying home, but bars and restaurants are both open. So our, our production team went from, you know, how can we keep everyone busy to now working overtime, trying to keep the cooler stock. So it's just been a really interesting time for our whole team to kind of just try to like pivot (laughs) both directions. Yeah. That's so interesting because I, part of me, and we haven't had conversations with anyone in in beer probably since before, well before uh, COVID and the pandemic started. But part of my mind was like, I wonder what's happening because it also seems to be like price inelastic or like demand inelastic where like even if I'm on a, I'll say some sort of like reduced income, if I drink alcohol, I'm going to continue to drink alcohol. And I wasn't sure what happened to demand through all this. So there was some moment where people were right-sizing and figuring out what's going on, imagining largely because breweries or other bars or other restaurants in town might have been a big part of your business. Definitely. Yeah. So our keg business, you know, essentially stopped overnight. So um, one of our strategies was taking beer that had been kegged and kind of push it into bottles. Bottle, Hmm. Bottle sales in grocery stores were increasing because like you said yeah people are like i'm still gonna drink beer i'm just drinking it at home um so yeah managing that inventory it's been really interesting yeah it's a shift from uh on-premise consumption to off-premise which in in the beer world on-premise is your bars and restaurants where you're drinking it on site off-premise is where you're taking beer to go uh, Mm -hmm. grocery stores Mm -hmm. And so our business has shifted dramatically um, where our tap room was definitely a bedrock for the business, uh, moving bar, uh, moving beer at bars and breweries and restaurants. We've shifted a ton of that volume in, into the grocery store channels. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. And I, so I recently read that there was an aluminum can shortage. Do you guys use aluminum cans at all for any of your products? Yeah. So I probably didn't affect you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I was just, cause they were saying how everyone was switching to aluminum cans because more restaurants are wanting aluminum cans because they don't want to have kegs. They don't have the volume to support that. And it's more sanitary. And then, uh, all the grocery stores and stuff selling their beer in there. But huh. interesting. I, it was interesting because you saw a lot of tap rooms um, that, that weren't really selling packaged beer or very tap room focused um, start packaging their own beer. And so, yeah, yeah. those aluminum cans, um, we've always bottled. Um, so, yeah, we haven't, we haven't really been affected at all by that shortage. How interesting. Uh, and, and just to give us, and the listeners, a little bit of a timeline uh, situation. I believe we just celebrated a Ginger's Revenge birthday. How right? So, how long have have we been at this uh, beer game? Yeah, we opened our doors in March of 2017. Um, so we just celebrated our three year anniversary right before the shutdown happened. Ten days before the shutdown. <laughs> Crazy! Yeah. I, I was I was there for one of the, some of the festivities, and I, thank you so much for coming. Of course, and I, it seems I, I remember it like it was yesterday, and I can imagine that it would feel like either 
yesterday to you as well, or lifetimes ago, three years in the last three months? It feels like both. Um, and we, we had some professional photography done that weekend. And so it was so strange for me to look through those photos now because people are not social distancing and our tap room is packed and we have bands playing and all these things mm-hmm. that are just like not happening in all of our lives right now. Um, so yeah, it was, it's, really wild that we were able to celebrate that weekend, but then 10 days later go into a shutdown. Um, but we were able to celebrate the three years and we've been at this for, for a total of five. So it took us two years to get the doors of the brewery open. We incorporated the company in May of 2015. So sometimes we have to remember, we're like, wow, that was, that was five years ago. (laughs) Yeah, so even before then, um, we started making alcoholic ginger beer in 2012. Um, so, like homebrew kind of vibe? That's right. Mm. First batch was like two liters. (laughs) Um, we, uh, bless you. We, thank you. We used to live in Panama. Uh, we, we did a brief stint down there in Latin America, um, as part of, I guess, part of our finding ourselves phase. Um, and <laughs> we know that well. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, same Italy, but uh, cool, cool, cool. Mm, Understood. Yeah. I think we we get you on the vibe of finding yourself. So Panama and is ginger beer like a thing? No, no. Okay, <laughs> I was gonna say that. I, uh, okay. I've been humbering for a few years and determined mm-hmm. to keep brewing down in Panama. Um, spent some time volunteering at a craft brewery down there where the movement was just starting to get started. Um, uh, and my cousin had introduced me to alcoholic ginger beer. Um, so I decided to give it a shot. I saw that those ingredients were easy to find in Panama, the cane sugar, the ginger, the lemon and lime, mm-hmm. you can just pick up at the grocery store. So I started making it down there, making the ginger beer into, uh, dark and stormy cocktails with mm. Panamanian rum. And mm-hmm. we just kind of fell in love with it. Um, soon after that, we moved to Asheville, started serving the ginger beer at homebrew events, picked up some uh, awards at festivals, and we just started getting the sense that the universe was presenting us with this opportunity, um, and we couldn't ignore it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So many questions. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I guess going going back to like the the process of making ginger beer how is it different from regular beer or cider? Like, like talk us through how does one make a ginger beer at home? Yeah. So basically, um, regular beer is made from malt and hops. Malt is, uh, usually made from barley, wheat, and rye. Um, and the malt contributes the fermentable sugars to the beer, whereas the hops give you bitterness and flavor. Um, And so the corollary with ginger beer is that the cane sugar provides the fermentable sugar and the ginger provides the flavor. Got it. And so like, do you, do you pull, do you put like whole pieces of ginger in there and like let it ferment? Do you like juice the ginger? How, like how, how does it work? Imagine just a Vitamix in there (laughs) blending it up. It's pretty simple. Well, we add the ginger at three different points in our process. So it's a little bit of everything. Um, but basically, we make a ginger tea, add the cane sugar, steep some spices, and ferment that uh, with an ale yeast. 
the yeast turns the sugar into alcohol. Um, and then we, we back blend flavors after fermentation, which is a little bit more similar to cider making. So it's really kind of a combination of beer making and cider making processes. And correct me if I'm wrong, there's in like alcohol creation, typically it's like the, the sugar source is the way that you define what it is. So it's cider if there's apples, it's sake if it's rice. Am I, am I right on that generally? Mead if it's honey? Yeah. Right. And um, so when we were starting this business, like there wasn't a whole lot of precedent for defining this product. But um, in the federal code, it says that beers are made from malt or a substitute thereof where they consider sugar to be a substitute for malt. So therefore our product is classified as a beer. Hmm. So, and, and, um, there's a hot process involved in making our product that is a bit more similar to making beer, um, with Mm -hmm. a lot of wine or ciders, there isn't necessarily like a hot process involved unless you're processing some of the fruits down or something like that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And and when I think about like the like ginger ginger beverages seems to be a pretty narrow part of the the supermarket shelf at least to a uninformed consumer I can think of reeds is it reeds as just like ginger It's like non-alcoholic ginger beer yeah. Non-alcoholic yeah, right? Yeah. And that maybe, maybe that's as far as like a layman can go. So it seems like there's uh, some green pastures to come in plant a flag and say, we're, we're going to, we're going to take this over. Is that right? Wrong? Otherwise? Yeah, Yeah. totally. Um, and we were inspired early on in our research to find that, uh, alcoholic ginger beer used to be super popular in North America with some 500 producers making alcoholic ginger beer. Um, there was a quote that we came across that said, uh, there were times in our country's history where the commercial sale of ginger beer exceeded that of both hopped beer and cider. And so that really kind of like sparked this this opportunity for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. What, when? When? I'm sorry. When would that have been? Pre-prohibition. Like, pre-prohibition. Yeah, so when How prohibition interesting. Happened. A lot of those companies either went out of business or they pivoted and started making soft drinks. And so the ginger mm-hmm. ale that we know today isn't typically made with fresh ginger. It's made with extract. Um, and so it's really, I feel like only even been in the last decade that we've seen a resurgence of true non-alcoholic ginger beer as well, where it's like actually made with mm-hmm. real ginger and not extract. So Fascinating. Love it. Yeah. Well, so how many, how many times did it take before you got a recipe that you were like, yeah, this is, this is drinkable or like, this is uh this is sellable. Mm. I mean, and then, were there any batches where you're like, this is just horrible when you were starting out? <laughs> yeah, there were, there were one or two five gallon batches early on that um, I decided not to drink. I experimented with some different sugar sources. Um, I think I made one batch entirely from sorghum syrup. Mm. Oh, cool. Yeah. Did, not, did, cool. Did, not cool. <laughs> cool idea. Sorghum's yeah. having a year, though. 2020, 2019 were good years for sorghum. It showed up in my world and has continued to show up. Maybe it's just you spot it. But, okay, sorghum not good for ginger beer creation. Was, I, I think it was sorghum molasses. Yeah. Mm. Even more unusual. What was the sugar we used when we were in Panama? The, like, little cakes? Yeah, uh, 
piloncillo. I yeah, think. they're these like um, dark uh, sugar cakes that you can buy in um, grocery stores in Panama. And we made some batches with those, which was really good. Um, David experimented with different yeast strains and always just kept coming back to the original one. Um, You probably played around with some like really high ABV ones, which were very high ABV. Um, (laughs) But when we, when we decided to start the business, we definitely went through a process of, you know, kind of like translating it to a commercial. Mm. There's a lot of things that are easy to do on the homebrew side um, that are harder to do on the commercial side. So um, it was really intimidating, though, because we basically went from 15 gallons to, was that first batch, 15 barrels? I think our first batch was 500 gallons. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow, wow, like, wow. You know, it, so, was, it was just the two of us. We had, like, one very part-time employee. This is in early 2017, and we're both, like, staring down in the tank, and we're, like, looking at each other, and it was kind of like a oh, my God, moment. Like, just <laughs> make this much ginger beer. Um, Wow. The batch on the commercial system turned out great. Drinkable, um, sellable. So. Wow. And so, so I'm always surprised. I mean, I don't want to say surprised. I think that people, it's possible to when you think beer, you think, um, I don't know, beer belly and like people who are not scientists. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think beer, I think scientists until recently mm-hmm. when you get some exposure to people who are home brewers and people who work at breweries you're a scientist like lab coats you know figuring out exact ratios and then scaling that ratio up and seeing what breaks and like i that's that's hardcore to me all of a sudden whoa beer is science that's interesting and so i'm wondering uh how much of the process was 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 easy enough because you had been a home brewer and some of the smaller scale science just needed bigger portions and then like what things started breaking at scale that you couldn't have known about until you went from five gallons to 150 gallons um and maybe we'll pause there but then the next step for me is two years before a tap room does that mean two years without revenue or were you ooh, so like t- let's talk through some of the <laughs> nervousness i can only imagine like even if you had done an incredible job building a life savings Two years of just watching a number go down has to, like, I'm sweating thinking about that. So, like, what things broke as you start to introduce scale and think, okay, this is going to be commercial now. And then what's going on in your mind as, I imagine there's some sort of a clock where, like, we need to start making money. <laughs> like, how, and how does that all uh, affect those first two years? Yeah. Yeah, well, there's a lot there. Uh, <laughs> There's a, there's a ton, and I apologize, but you take you it how you want. You just, like, throw on, like, <laughs> 20 questions. Go. <laughs> like, That's what? okay. Um, uh. Well, we definitely had a sense of urgency um, to get open and get our product out there. Um, one, because we just felt like the time was ripe uh, to introduce a naturally gluten-free alcoholic beverage into the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, uh, do, it's just the nature of the brewing business that you can't legally sell beer until you have a fully permitted facility constructed in place. Or market it. So you're not even allowed to market it until you have your federal permit. Yeah, so it, it took us um, a few months to start fundraising, uh, nine months to find the real estate, six or seven months to 
uh, do the build out and the construction, get the equipment installed a couple more months to, um, to start brewing and, and just kind of get all of our ingredients and supplies and everything in order. So yeah, it was a long two year startup process. And just like you said, we kind of watched that, uh, bank account dwindle and yeah, that was stressful. So we, um, we were very lucky and very grateful to have some awesome investors on our team. And so that's what helped provide that startup capital for those first two years. Um, I also kept my full-time job until Janu- January of 2017. So I was mm. working at a nonprofit um where there's staff members in Asheville, it's called Groundswell International. And I worked there for about four and a half years. And then even after I moved full-time with the brewery in January, 2017, I still consulted with that organization for six months, you know, and that was kind of, David was full-time. Well, he, after about five or six months, he had been freelancing. He went full-time with the brewery to be able to focus on it. But, you know, we were like, Christina's going to keep her job and make sure we can pay our mortgage and bills. (laughs) And that's mm-hmm. how we're going to figure this out. So it was definitely a team effort to make that happen. Oh, I want to flag a couple things because that, I think it's really helpful and create some context. So uh, we've had some people ask about fundraising in the past. I'm wondering if there are any highlights, things that you remember about like pitching a concept. Are these friends and family fundraisers or are these like institutional investors who do beer things? Um And then I I just, I'll flag, but we don't need to go into the idea of having that kind of overlap seems like a really good place to start. If you can, we, uh, we were gifted Sarah's old job, like, like right before we left New York, two days before we left, like asked her to, to do contract work for a couple months. And that was so much oxygen for us that it's hard to even quantify looking back on it over a year ago. So cool. The overlap. Awesome. Let's talk about just as a concept. You have great investors. What do they look like? How did you pitch them? Any highlights from that five years ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah, our, our uh, early investors all fit in the friends and family category. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we feel really lucky to um, have those people on our team. Mm-hmm. Um, and our business would look very different if we did not have, have those folks on board. Um so, yeah, we just feel incredibly fortunate. Um, but I also want to brag on you a little bit. So when David was working on the business plan, um, he kept kind of coming back to me and being like, you know, this smaller scale that we're thinking about, it doesn't make sense. You know, like he kept crunching the numbers and kind of coming back. Here we are putting a very niche product into the market. And he was like, I think we have to start with 15 barrels, which isn't necessarily common um, to start out with a, a, you know, equipment that size, especially with an untested product <laughs> in the market. Um, but based on kind of the business plan that we were presenting to be able to mm-hmm. to show to potential investors, even though they were friends and family, you know, that was kind of what we felt like we needed to do. And that has played out well for us because we've been able to take advantage of that scale now growing Mm -hmm. into that system um, without having to like stop and establish a new system. And I think, you know, David did a lot of really awesome work early on crunching those numbers and coming up with a plan that worked and made sense and that we were able to communicate easily to investors. Mm -hmm. So 
Nice work, babe. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and then just one more very practical question is, were, were the initial investments just straight up equity in the business or were they some sort of convertible note? So and then uh, having friends and family, to me, is it seems compelling because it seems less likely that they'd be like, and seven years from now, I need you to exit at, you know, a hundred million dollar business because I need to make a thousand uh, X return on this. Right. Tox clock sticking. No, um it was all equity investment and um, our, all our investors are super, super supportive of, of our vision and, and nobody's pressuring us to, to make a quick exit. So, again, we feel very lucky. With that being said, though, it's a different kind of pressure because we feel pressure to want to honor that investment of people mm-hmm. we love and care about and um, be good stewards of that money. So it's it's a different type of pressure. Um, but right. yeah, that they've been really supportive and, um, you know, we're there when we need to ask advice. Um, when it all, you know, all the COVID stuff went down, we had like a contingency planning meeting with the investor team. Um, so yeah, we have a, we have a great team of people to turn to for sure. Love it. Yeah. So this, I think this is a good point to ask a question that um, someone asked from our audience on Instagram. Um, they wanted to know what it, your growth curve looks like and how did you plan that? Like, is it exponential? Is it slow? Was it deli- deliberately slow or deliberately fast? Um, yeah. That's a good question. Yeah, a real good question. Um, well, early on, I, I think we we saw the potential for the product. And so we built a business plan um, around that potential of distributing beer into a five or six state region in the Southeast. Um, But in our first year or so in business, we knew that product quality was everything. And so rather than just try to push as much beer as we possibly could, we really focused on getting the process right um, and getting the quality as good as it could be. Kind of like we talked about earlier, like there wasn't really a roadmap for us to create this alcoholic ginger beer company. And so a lot of things we have had to figure out on our own. Um, and so we allowed the business, I think, in, in the first year or so to grow organically and we were very fortunate to have a lot of positive word of mouth from people around town, a lot, yeah. a lot of local bars and restaurants um, coming to us asking for kegs. Um, and so we kind of let that happen at its own speed and um, started building up momentum from there. Mm-hmm. And then the process of, of you know, doubling the first time versus the process of doubling the second time has been really interesting. So we have set aggressive growth targets. Um, you know, we set very aggressive goals for 2020, which we had to revise obviously given, given the climate. Um, so there's been, I I like to say that our goals are aggressively realistic. (laughs) So we're not just like, kind of like letting it just grow organically. We are putting our, our foot on the gas and kind of setting some high goals. Yeah. As, as the business matured, we've uh, become more deliberate about setting those goals. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
at the beginning of this year, it felt like we were kind of getting into this rhythm of like strategic planning and figuring out how to execute on those goals. And then COVID happened. <laughs> <laughs> we spent all that time working on our strategic plan for 2020. Yeah. But oddly enough, we kept a lot of, um, we kept a lot of our main like priorities. We set like five annual priorities and we kept a lot of them. It was just some of our, our volume and revenue goals changed. Mm-hmm. So we pivoted a little bit, but there's in terms of the projects that we're working on, a lot of those are still the same. So. Yeah. So what are some of those goals for this year? And I mean, you don't have to share necessarily specific numbers, but um, qual- from a qualitative point of view, I guess, what are some of those goals that um, what were some of the uh, qualitative. Priorities. Yeah, I mean, we're ju- we're just always fascinated with how people, humans, but then also businesses, uh, create goals and think mm-hmm. about a planning process, knowing that you know a plan is as good as in, you know until you make contact with the enemy, or it's that process of planning that's the value, not the plan itself. But very interested to know how you chose five ideas or five points, or how you think about planning generally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, um, probably our top goal at the end of 2019 and early 2020 was to start selling beer in Ingalls. Um, and we finally made that happen in February of this year, right before the pandemic hit, which, uh, which turned out to be incredible timing. Um, without that grocery store volume, uh, you know, we would have really struggled not to say that it wasn't a struggle but um that was good timing it seems like it could have been an indiana jones demand switch like you know like the temple of doom putting the sandbag (laughs) of ingles over where the skull once was of kegs (laughs) if if you're with me you're with me if you're not (laughs) you're not that kind of um yeah we um we definitely saw a dip, uh, even even with the Ingalls volume, but uh, Ingalls has been key to us kind of getting back on track um, over the last couple of months. And, you know, Ingalls is one of the largest movers of craft beer in the region. Mm. Um, there are a total of 53 Ingalls in Western North Carolina, um, and it's where a lot of our customers shop. And so we would field those phone calls all the time or get... Um, emails from people like in the Waynesville area or farther out and didn't have as easy access to our bottles. Mm. So it was also being able to provide that for our customers to make it easier for them. And and when trying to sell into a large supermarket like that, are you just like forwarding emails from customers to them and being like, hey, like someday, come on, like when's it going to happen? Buy from us. Like how do you... All right, maybe that's a different conversation, but okay. So that's one of the goals is like, we want distribution in a large supermarket. You pinned Ingles, it's on the vision board and it happens two months into the year. No less. That's not, that's not bad for checking a box. Well, a the pro- process itself took a lot longer okay. than that. It wasn't something that we had just started. said, like, okay. you know, starting January one. I mean, we worked on that goal for most of 2019 okay. as well. Um, we, we actually, like, it took us a little while to find a strategic planning process that worked for both of us because mm-hmm. our brains work very differently. Um, mm-hmm. So we um, both really like the Rockefeller Habits um, mm. by Vern Harnish. Yeah, Rockefeller CEO. Uh, yeah. Got it, got it, got it. We, we have that on our bookshelf. 
something that resonated with both of us. We could kind of agree on the process. And so that's what we used. Um, so Ingalls was a big one. Um, we're working on our fourth bottle release, which is our cranberry herb ginger beer. Um, so we were actually working on that a lot. Q1 with Atlas Branding, who I know you guys have had on the podcast mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Um, we kind of paused um, that process a bit back in March when COVID happened and we're, we're working on it again now. So hope to get those bottles out soon. Um, just in general, releasing more products into packages. Um, so in terms of like identifying the five priorities, I mean, we kind of go through that process, like outline in the Rockefeller habits, kind of like throw some stuff up on the wall and then kind of like narrow it down to what five priorities we feel like will best help us achieve the, the revenue and volume goals that we've set. Got so. it. And yeah. re- revenue and volume would be like the final stop, right? So one of the things that we're, we're thinking, when we think about goals, we try and think about things that air quotes are in our control. Mm-hmm. And I, and I often will say like revenue for us at least is a result of things that are in our control, but like yeah. revenue directly typically is not in my control, but I can have a lot of sales conversations. I can have a lot of cold emails into businesses that are local and, you know, introduction conversations and have coffees in a world where coffees exist. Uh, But like the revenue is a result of these other things that are in in our control. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we had set revenue and volume goals for 2020. We were trying to double our volume this year. And, uh, yeah, when we revised our 2020 strategic plan after the pandemic, we just took those out and said, this is not the year to measure our success, on volume. Yeah. So we're, we're looking more now at, um, you know, like, profitability and like cash in the bank and things just kind of keep us resilient and sustainable. (laughs) So we're doing more on those things than like um, some of the growth plans that we have. Love the cash in the bank as a, as a goal. Cause it's, it's just, it's adjacent to revenue, but it's Mm -hmm. not necessarily like this number needs to get bigger. It's like, there are a bunch of levers that we can pull that affect how much stays in the business. Right. So it's like keeping, keeping that runway. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I want to go back because you said that your, you know, your brains think very differently mm-hmm. and that resonates very much with Tony and if, I. Yeah, If you're not watching the YouTube channel, we did some praise hands on this side and we're like, yeah, we feel that we feel two different brains as, as partners. Yeah. Okay. And, and you're one of the, I think you're like the third husband and wife team we've interviewed. And I, I always love interviewing husband and wife teams because I'm like, it's a lot. It's, it seems like it could be a lot. It's a lot. And it, it's so real for us. So I, I would love to know, like, what is it like working together and, and what sort of challenges have you guys faced being in the business together? Well, first off, it's great um, being able to spend so much time together and, <laughs> and have this shared context yeah. of of our lives and, and, and to uh, work on this project together, this massive, massive project. Um, built something together. I mean, we literally built something together out of an idea. Yeah. When I, when I kind of came around and realized that like this ginger beer thing was what I needed to do, I told Christina, I'm not going to do it without you. I want to do this together. Mm -hmm. We had had 
conversations early on in our relationship about starting a business together. And I just couldn't really imagine a re reality when we weren't doing this together. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that's a beautiful thing. Hey, right. That's beautiful. And, uh, one of our stories, I think we might've mentioned on the podcast before is Sarah and I, um, we got engaged in Italy and in that, on that trip, I remember we met some of Sarah's friends who live in Rome and this woman said, and I, it's exactly what you're saying. She's like, when my husband and I were dating, it became very clear that the only thing that we wanted to do was like create a world where we got to spend as much time together as possible. And so they started business. I think that's beautiful. I think it's amazing. And now I think, uh, is that framework enough to get through, you know, your brains operating differently and having different concepts of what like vision setting and planning could look like and like risk profiles for money in the bank, right? So it's one thing to be like, we want this thing. It's another thing to live into that uh, in truth over five years and all of the ups and downs of five years. And so I'm wondering what have you learned through the process? What things like, do you have like special code words that like level set and bring you back down to zero? And you're like, yeah, no, you're right. We asked for this. No, the, the devil's in the details for sure. And, uh, we've, we've talked, uh, about having like a secret sign language, <laughs> uh, to facilitate. Mm -hmm. Um, but no, it's been a huge learning curve um, to figure out how to work together. Um, one thing we've talked a lot about is like co-managing our business. And I think what we've found is that when we're both in charge of everything, nobody's in charge of anything. Yeah. <laughs> so we've had to get really clear on uh, who's responsible for what aspect of our business. Mm. And so what, what does that look like? Like how, how do you divide your responsibilities? Mm -hmm. Well, it's, evolved. Yeah. It, it, it's hard when uh, we're both each other's sounding board. Yeah. Um, yeah. But generally speaking, um, I'm looking at more of uh, sales and production. Um, and Christina is doing more marketing front of house. Um, Public facing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, we still tag team a lot of uh, finance and accounting and many, many other things that, that just need to get done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think, too, you know, I think what's interesting about working together is you're seeing your partner um, in like really high moments of stress. Um, you're seeing like it was hard for me early on for. David to like see me fail or, or that's how I perceived it. Right. Like we are both people that hold ourselves to like really high standards and, um, always want to ex exceed expectations. And so, you know, if I would do something and not execute a, a project as well as I wanted to, like, I'm feeling that disappointment in myself. And then I'm like, Oh gosh. And like David, you know, David is seeing this too, or he's relying on me. And so, so I think, that's hard. Mm. And I think that's natural in any relationship, right? You are um, growing together. You're learning to respect someone growing as an individual and also um, supporting the partnership to grow along with that individual growth. And then when you add that layer of a business partnership on top of that, it's the same thing. We're both growing as leaders. You know, our starting a business, I think, highlights 
you know, some of your personal weaknesses and you have to work through that mm-hmm. um, as part of your professional growth too. So it's just been, yeah, it's, it's, it's learning to respect that and give each other support and, um, yeah. And that can be really challenging mm-hmm. when you're in high stress situations. So, yeah. and uh, what I've noticed uh, the opposite side of that same coin, cause we feel that as well is that I've, there have been moments where I have the presence of mind to go, Oh my goodness, this is such a gift. Like seeing Sarah exceed what I could have thought was where like she would feel comfortable. Like we've done, for example, we, you know, we, I think we first met at a making it a Nashville style like event and, um, seeing Sarah like work a room. So I, you know, in my mind, Sarah's the introvert in the in the relationship. She's the quieter one. We have 60 people come to a Monday Maker Mixer and she's bouncing around the room and I get to have that with her because of this thing that we're working on together. And, you know, if that was just a, you know, Acme Corp event that she had to go to on a Tuesday night and I stayed home and like ate a, you know, frozen dinner, I don't get to see that. Right. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that like, I love us doing together where I feel like is I love when we pitch together. Mm. Um, we just have, we both like bring different things to a pitch. Um, and afterwards we're like, nice job. You know, it's just like a (laughs) cool thing to share together where we're both kind of bringing our strengths to the situation. Yeah, things like this, interviews, meetings, negotiations, we're, we're able to have this kind of like back and forth that I think works really well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is incredibly rewarding seeing your partner succeed. So when Christina got the Woman Up Award, mm-hmm. um, when she got nominated to be on the board of the Chamber of Commerce, it was just know, super rewarding to, to watch that happen. <laughs> I'm not saying you're uh, yeah crying. this is so cool cool um awesome I think that we we ran down that that trail on the relationship this is very helpful for us thank you we're we're constantly you know I think aware that this is the most important relationship that we'll ever have and uh, asking questions and allowing other people to inform the way that we see it, just like in a business. Like we have these conversations with business owners to, you know, uh, through osmosis, see things that we might not have seen until they showed up and it mattered. <laughs> and so uh, getting to talk with people like you about, you know, what it's like is incredibly helpful. And so thank you. Yeah. And it's like proof that it can, uh, it's possible. I think a lot of people out there are like, oh, I can never work with my spouse. And it's like, what? Really? Like you, you know, you can imagine not working do that. But yeah, it's 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 all um, very interesting. So I, I mean, I know the next trail that I want to run down. We Go mentioned it. it. We blew right past it. And I was going to try and make a joke about like, and it's amazing how well you've done with such terrible branding. I love. <laughs> it's a joke because Atlas Branding has been on the podcast. Or dear friends, we're in. So uh, I like to use the the metaphor of like if they're a hermit crab, they've grown out of their old shell and they're now in a bigger hermit crab shell and we're, we just moved in to their old shell. We're in, this is the former Atlas branding office, people. Oh, How cool. cool. So, cool. so Atlas, we love you. Kidding. You guys have tremendous branding. What part of your business cycle 
did that happen? Were you like, hey, as we raise money, this much is earmarked and making it look pro day one? Or were you like, let's get some sales and then pay for uh, a renovation of the look and feel? It was very early. It was 2015. Wow. So branding was one of the first things we started working on. I think I think we did our RFP for a branding company in the summer of 2015. And I don't even think we had found our real estate yet. Um, so we knew kind of in, in the beer world, you know, a big part of our business plan was having our bottles available in grocery stores and wanting to have branding that conveyed that we were making premium products. We used 95% organic ingredients um, and that kind of stood out on the grocery store shelf. And so like, I remember, um, so, you, you know, you've been in our space. We have this awesome mural on our wall of ginger, um, which is the artwork for our original ginger beer. And we had the sketch drawing for her, the like black and white drawing, um, when we went home for Christmas in December of 2015. And I remember like pulling those out and getting to look at those with, with the family. So yes, it was something we, um, decided to make an investment in early on and it's definitely paid off. And, and I, I can't remember what they said. I know they said that maybe they were help a part of the naming process as well. Is that right? Or did you have a name in mind when you, before you did any of the branding? Yeah, we also had some hurdles with our, their branding early on. Um, we immediately formed our LLC as Ginger's Revenge LLC. Um, it was, this name that had come up in a brainstorming uh, session with friends. A drinking session with friends. <laughs> They're synonymous. It's fine. Friends. <laughs> <laughs> but we had uh, we, we had decided at one point in time that, hey, we need more of a um, umbrella brewing company type of name uh, so that we wouldn't pigeonhole ourselves into ginger beer. And so we uh spent a lot of time coming up with different names we even picked one started designing a logo with atlas and then discovered that we had a trademark conflict with that name so we abandoned it we decided you know what we're just going to go with ginger's revenge it's memorable really sticks out um it's was, edgy yeah it was already how people were referring to us mm. they were like yeah. ginger people you know <laughs> so we we just kind of through caution of the wind, I guess. Yeah. That's what we're going with. And so we kind of had to restart on our whole branding. Um, and, and Atlas helped us kind of redesign that logo. And, uh, yeah, we actually had like a mock-up bottle with this other company name and the redheaded drummer artwork. Mm -hmm. And so it was pretty challenging to come up with a new logo to fit into the vibe of that artwork. Mm hmm but Atlas definitely helped guide us through that process and provided insight of, about trademarks and, you know, what might be worth it or not worth it. Um, so, yeah, we really appreciate their kind of guidance and expertise on that. And it all worked out really well. I think I appreciate about working with Atlas, too, is that um, early on we were like, okay, we want to make sure that we have consistency mm -hmm. across our our packaging and so we spent a lot of time with the first package design to kind of like make sure that we had um, those consistent touches in place and so kind of having that foundation made it easier as we've added other packages i hear that i think that that's largely one of the primary differences between 
we live in a world where you can go to Fiverr and get a logo design for very, uh, call it fair rates. Yeah. Um, the difference between getting a PNG or a JPEG of a image that looks cool and having a brand that is consistent and reliable and repeat like repeatable and allows for the fifth bottle type to show up and fit in a cohesive like overall brand like that is just stuff that my brain doesn't think like that and that's why pulling in uh the pros seems to make a lot of sense when you think back to some of the trademark lessons like what what stands out because one of the things that I find myself thinking a lot. Um, and when I have conversations with people who are very early in a process, I, because of how I show up in my energy and my risk profile, I'm like, go fast, do the thing, figure it out later. Like, don't trademark. Come on. You're worried about your trademark? But like, it, it does make sense to worry about a trademark. Yeah. Also, don't let it be like the blocker that keeps you from like, imagine you'd never started. I'd rather you run into a trademark issue than never start. That's my worldview. What, what stands out about some of those early foundational logo trademark, um, copyrights, things like that. Yeah. I think, uh, starting out as a new business owner, it's just really hard to know when and when not to seek outside advice. And we just kind of learned the hard way that trademark is one of those areas where you really need a professional to check your work. Um, Saves you time and money in the long run. There are other aspects where, you know, maybe you don't need a lawyer or an accountant as much as you might think. But um, hindsight is twenty twenty. It's really it's really hard to know when you're just starting out. And I, I think with trademarking, too, it might depend on the industry or the business that you're starting for, for us, you know, where we have a product, um, having that trademark was really important. And also in the beer business, mm. trademarking is so challenging in the beer business. Cause not only have we like finally exceeded the number of breweries in the United States that were in place, you know, before prohibition, but each brewery is putting out dozens of beers and are naming those beers. Mm-hmm. So constant trademark issues in the beverage and in our trademark category, non-alcoholic beverages are in the same category. So it's not just alcoholic beverages. It's non-alcoholic beverages yeah. too. So there's just so much competition in that space. So having somebody who knows what they're doing. Yeah. And I've, I've read a couple brewery books or, you know, uh, histories of, of breweries. And one of the things that I remember going like, Oh my God, is, uh, you know, insert Acme big, big beer company will see a style or a naming convention come out from a small brewery be like, Oh, that's really savvy. And then buy up the rest of the zip codes in the U S or buy up the rest of the area codes in the U S and like put, because they have a fleet of lawyers. Yeah. Go ahead and, you know, get us all of those for every other area code in the country. Oh yeah. (laughs) Um, we actually received a postcard in late 2015 from a large um, alcoholic beverage company in the United States um, about a like potential trademark issue with Ginger Revenge, and it was just like this sinking feeling. I was like, "Oh my gosh!" We haven't even started. <laughs> What's we started, and like a few weeks later, I was contacted by someone that I 
went to college with. I mean, they know me by my family nickname and they just happened to be the trademark attorney wow. for this big beverage company. And he's like, Hey, I think this is something we can like quickly resolve, like, you know, over the phone. And we did, and it was totally fine. We're able to just like put in an exclusion, our trademark application and like move right past it. And I'm like, what a small world yeah. that like somebody that I went to college with is the attorney for this company. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's just wild. You know, if that hadn't been the case, like we could have been, I don't know, it could have played out differently. But. Yeah. And I imagine it could be so demoralizing in your first couple months. And you're like, are we really going to put, we just raised money. We're going to put how much, like, this is a bottomless pit of money potentially yeah. to attempt to fight the big dog Yeah. on, or do we just rename it? Like maybe we just pay Atlas again. Like I can imagine those conversations and being like, it's, it's a little, I don't know, crazy. Yeah. yeah. Dang. Yeah. Beer. People are out going for each other's throats. Um, it's one of those things you have to plan for, I think, yeah. financially. Like, you're going to run into some problems, yeah. and some of them can be quite expensive. So yeah. it's a good thing to just keep in mind, you know, for your rainy day fund. Well, I love I love that. And so how have you thought about, I mean, a couple questions. How what, What's the, like, largest employee count you've ever had? Where are you today? How have you thought about things like rainy day funds um, are you thinking about it in a startup world where you're like runway and, you know, burn rate, or are you thinking about it like employees cost X, let's put that like Atlas described, putting X amount in a bank, knowing that that was going to be a full year salary for their first employee before they hired anybody. Like, how do you think about some of those rainy day line items? And I can't imagine that you saw global pandemic showing up as a <laughs> rainy day need, but, you know, the more common ones, how, how have you thought about those? Yeah, we've definitely looked at runway in terms of like months of expenses on hand. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, breweries are notoriously capital intensive. So it's been it's been very difficult to have, um, you know, any kind of rainy day fund. Mm -hmm. um, Especially when we're trying to invest in growth, mm -hmm. you know, so we're kind of taking maybe money that would have been in a rainy day fund and investing it in new equipment or things that will allow us to, to grow. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's the thing about scaling uh, this type of business. As soon as you grow the business to this uh, revenue point where it looks like you might be approaching break even, there's another $15,000 tank you have to buy another $10,000 worth of kegs you have to buy. It's just kind of like this snake eating its tail sort of mm. thing. And so I, I think, Part of it is just understanding that in this type of business, in order to grow, financing is something that is always kind of in the back of your mind. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and that mean to me, that means debt financing, right? Like a like a proper bank loan or something like that. Yeah. So we actually, when we started out, it was a blend of debt and equity. So we got a and you know a sizable bank loan, and we had our um, equity investors. Um, we established a line of credit with the bank. Um, so those all of those things were like constantly monitoring our our cash flow and kind of looking at our available credit. And um, it's been definitely even more interesting over the past couple of months looking at all those things and maybe wanting to have more money in the bank. So um, yeah, it's it's never and. Oddly enough, David and I both enjoy doing it. I would mm. say David's more does more of the like strategic long-term financial planning and projections, um, whereas mine might be like, 
you know, numbers on, on a notepad. Mm-hmm. Uh, we both kind of bring that perspective when we're doing budgeting and projections and cash flow planning. So. Yeah, there's a phrase with brewery startups that it's going to take twice as long and cost three times as much. And even hearing that when we were starting out, like we weren't fully really, prepared no. for it. Like, I mean, like, logically, I understand that sentence. Yeah. <laughs> but then, it, yeah, that was definitely the case. And our, it was really funny. I remember when we were like, um, negotiating with our landlord, um, who's also amazing. And like, you know, they, they supported this vision that these two young entrepreneurs had, but he was like, you know, he basically said to like plan for a dumb tax, mm-hmm. which is like, basically like, you know, having money for things you didn't know and you end up spending, you know, I think we, we definitely had some like dumb tax moments <laughs> in the course of our startup. Yeah. Yeah. I've, 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 We've raised debt and equity several times since we started the business. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's just important to keep an eye on your, uh, your P and L and your balance sheet and just, you know, try to manage it as best you can. Mm -hmm. And just uh, to define terms in case you listener are attempting to Google um, there, there are, two ways primarily to raise money for a business uh, that don't involve like selling things to customers. One is uh, equity financing. So you're giving away part of the ownership of the business for money. The other is debt financing, which is you're getting money as a form of debt and you need to pay it off. And there's pros and cons. And like I grew up, grew up, I'll say like I, my youth in business was primarily New York and thinking about tech companies. And so debt financing seems like this sleeper option to the average person. Like it's the traditional way, but then there's like pop culture startup world where it almost only seems like you're doing equity deals. Um, I, and so I, I find it refreshing and interesting that it's the blend of the two because why not take money from a bank and keep ownership of your business? Yeah. And for us, it was, it was about a 50 per 50 you know, blend, yeah. we started out and then that ratio, we're like, you know, that's one of our um, financial indicators that we're looking at is like the debt to equity ratio and as it changes over time. Fascinating. And then uh, the next question will be, how does credit show up in the world? Because it's one thing to have uh, credit with the bank, meaning by way of, um, you know, a- access to capital credit line. And then it's another thing like credit cards. Because it's one thing to have, I don't know, a $20,000, $200,000 bank loan. It's another thing to have a $10,000 credit limit, max it out. 20% interest rate is very different on a credit card. And I know a lot of people start businesses with a bunch of credit cards stapled together. Um, but it seems like a, a brewery is just too capital expensive to try and build on the back of credit cards. Yes. Yeah. Um, and we've definitely got a few cards uh, for the business. Um, but we've taken advantage of like 0% offers and, you know, tried our best to pay them off before the 0% expires. Um, yeah, credit cards are, are nasty and, um, (laughs) you you can get in a lot of trouble with those. So we're trying to avoid that Mm -hmm. in the business. But it's to have a card where it's like, you know, we, for the most part, are self-distributing breweries, except for Ingalls. And so to have a credit card that gives us 3% back on gas makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. You know, 
Um, so it, I, I think that the right credit cards can make sense for your company, depending on your cash flow needs or what you're purchasing or using it for. So, yeah. And as far as our business credit goes, um, I mean, we, we kind of got a main equipment loan and also a, a line of credit from the bank. Um, and we're just in, incredibly fortunate to have that. I know that a lot of startup businesses don't have that and we wouldn't have had it without the investors that we've got. Mm. Amazing. Yeah. Feel very fortunate. Yeah. They helped facilitate that for sure. But our bank, pa- I remember when we signed our bank paperwork, you know, it was like super thick. It was like as thick as a book. And at that point we weren't, we weren't married yet, you know? And I remember looking at David and we were like signing all that paperwork. I was like, well, this is, you know, <laughs> might as well. I'll be married. <laughs> yeah, we might, yeah. Yeah. We were tied together. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. wow. Make no mistake if, you know, if that bank loan doesn't come back, you know, we're, we're paying it for, for the rest of our lives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Heard. Well, so I'm curious, you said before that when we were talking about the name and stuff, mm. um, how you weren't, you weren't sure about naming it Gender's Revenge because maybe there's something else that you would want to include in there. Do you have any plans or intentions of, of including another type of product that's not gender beer? Yep. Yeah, we're um, we're doing a, a bit of R and D um, on some other product lines, uh, thinking about non-alcoholic beverages in particular. Love it. Yeah, uh, Gr Bevco. <laughs> it doesn't need to be you know the sexiest, but to, but that's actually the, that I think it, it starts an interesting conversation about. Um, you know, structuring businesses and building umbrellas and are like, and we just landmark moment in the history of making it creative LLC, which is the company that owns the podcast, right? Is um, we've filed for S corp status in the tax year of 2020. Huge moment. Uh, listener, one day we'll break down what that means because it's, it will make a real difference in our small world this year. How have you thought about like, business organization and tax positioning and as you especially if you're these thoughts r&d conversations are happening what thoughts are you thinking yeah that's a really complicated subject uh tax planning is really difficult um i guess what i would say to listeners is like find a trusted source of information Mm -hmm. do your own research as much as you can um, don't just expect like who, whatever accounting firm is on, on your, uh, payroll to, to figure it out for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, and and I, if that accounting firm is TurboTax, probably even less so. Yeah. Well, I, I think it just totally depends on your type of business and how mm. it's structured and your ownership. And, um, you know, when you have a capital intensive project, like a brewery where you're going to have a lot of depreciation, appreciation is complicated, you know, so that's like taking your equipment and breaking them out that expense over time and the implications that has on, um, tax planning and they keep changing the rules. So it's just, uh, I think that's one area where, yeah, I know. I think that's one area where I think that we've learned a lot in mm-hmm. the last five years. Um, but I think like David said, it's worth doing your own research on and kind of like having a feel for versus just kind of like relying on what somebody's telling you. But I'll buy that. I, I uh, 
depreciating our laptops is like giving me anxiety. And I can't imagine, <laughs> I can't imagine what you're going through. Barrels. Yeah. You know, like, oh my goodness. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, I think it's time to move into the bonus speed round, unless you have any other questions. Tim. I mean, I, so I just, we, we asked loosely about the future and that was by way of other product lines. I just, I'll, I'll ask more about like the core business um, in a post, maybe not post in a Corona's not going anywhere world. What are you thinking about for the back half of 2020? Yeah. So um, from the get go, uh, getting bottles in the grocery stores was our vision for the business. And so the pandemic just really reinforced that strategic mm-hmm. objective for us. Mm-hmm. Um, over the next year or so, like uh, Christina mentioned, uh, we'll be releasing our cranberry herb in bottles. So expanding our portfolio for those off premise stores. Um, we're going to be continuing to build some of the other markets that we're in, uh, Charlotte, Raleigh, Durham, Winston-Salem, um, but also looking at expanding in, into some other states, mm-hmm. some new, some new markets. And then another thing that we're working on, you know, I think a lot of people are still just staying at home and have, have, have the mentality of being able to get anything shipped to their door. Um, shipping beer across state lines is a little complicated, um, especially with our product that requires refrigeration. So mm. we don't need preservatives. We don't pasteurize. Mm. Um, so it's also shipping cold. Um, so that's something that our team is currently working on. We're working on building an e-commerce site and trying to figure out a way to ship beer to people in Florida and Maryland and Tennessee and all of these requests that we've, that we've gotten. And that was something honestly, like pre Corona, we were getting those requests and it just didn't, I guess we just didn't really feel like we had the bandwidth Mm. to figure that process out. And now in kind of like a, you know, pandemic world, we've moved that project to the front burner. Um, and, you know, hope to have that figured out in the next couple of months. So that, that would, I say, is a new initiative, um, yeah. something we kind of pivoted towards. Mm-hmm. seems like state lines and alcohol is just funny in a word. Yes. Yeah. Totally. Each state has different rules and laws, and a lot of them date back to um, just after prohibition and the way distribution works. It's definitely been, we've learned a lot over the last few years about all of those different rules and laws. Dang. Exciting. Mm-hmm. Well, Let's do the speed round. Here, yeah, here's to uh, getting Ginger's Revenge delivered to our door. And <laughs> yeah, uh, we, we can walk to you, but <laughs> no, I would love you to deliver it. So please <laughs> fix that. <laughs> cool. Um, all right, so speed round starts with a uh, concept here is that it's not actually speed round, but you can go as fast as you want. We're going to ask the questions maybe, you know, at 1.1x normal speed. Uh, first one's fill in the blank. Asheville is? Magical. <laughs> I like that. Amazing. So do you want us each to answer? Yeah, I guess yeah. so. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you both have to answer at the, at same, the same time. time. Oh, <laughs> Just kidding. That would be crazy. Um, Schwartz. Schwartz and what is the other guy's name? What is that show we watch? It's the improv too. Ben Schwartz know. and Jesse, Jesse something. something. Anyway. But they, they like to say the same words at the same time and it's like incredible <laughs> how, how close they get. <laughs> okay, sorry. Okay. The best thing a business owner can do for themselves is... Self care. Sleep. 
yes. So we just slept I, in this morning. Yeah, it was wonderful. we needed it. And I, ooh, that opens up a whole new, we'll, we'll leave it. But I, I hear that because that, that flies in the face of hustle culture. And that's something that I personally have a little bit of issue with. I love that. Yes, self-care. Well, and I will, I will just add to that. When we started this business, there were a lot of things that we sacrificed, like in our personal lives, and we decided sleep was not going to be one of them. Mm. Yeah. That said, we've had plenty of uh, sleepless, sleepless nights, sleepless nights, anxiety-induced nights. Usually, me, I, I have more trouble with that than you do. Yeah, but we were like, you know, we might be sacrificing home cooking and. Maybe, you know, we should be exercising more, but we're not sacrificing sleep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Here's to that. Snaps. Agreed. Okay. Um, uh, assuming that you recommend books, which book have you recommended the most to friends, family, peers? That's a good question. I mean, probably the Rockefeller Habits mm-hmm. that we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. From a yeah professional standpoint, mm-hmm. that's probably one. If we're going the fiction route, that's like, I don't know if I could answer that one quickly. <laughs> but, but let's let's force you to pick two or three because I would love – Sarah's uh, – we – we historically, I for a better part of maybe a decade and a half, I pretty much only read nonfiction business books. Wow. And now I only try to read, I don't know, fiction books, but – both, Especially yeah, at night. Both kind of into, I'm into like YA, like more young adult, like, I don't know, Harry Potter kind of stuff. And then he's into more sci-fi fantasy. Yeah, I'm like reading the night. like Lord but, of the Rings and Game of Thrones books yeah. because like my mind can hop into those worlds. And like going to sleep reading about Rockefeller being an incredible CEO gives me anxiety. <laughs> you, know, like, you know, like I love it. I'll read it during the day. You know, like I'll I'll, I'll start my day maybe with. Let's think about how Rockefeller might have handled this. Uh, but if I do that before night, I just know it's not its not who I am at 31. Right. Yeah. No, and I think for me, I mean, reading fiction is a big part of my personal self-care. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, the more that I time that I can spend like reading fiction and kind of just like escaping into another world is just really good for my peace of mind. So I don't know if I could narrow it down to like my top ones. Um but um, lately, I've, you know, over the past couple of years, I've been trying to make a point of reading um, books authored by people that do not look like myself. Mm-hmm. So um, authors who have a, have a different perspective, who are a different race, a different voice. Um, I just finished reading The Vanishing Half, which was excellent. Mm-hmm. I recommend that one. Um, Homegoing was really good. Homecoming? Homecoming. Homegoing. That's no. a good name, yeah. Because I, I'm, I see you title Homegoing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, cool, and that's perfect. Those two, we'll we'll flag those links yeah. in the show notes. Um, to my dad, who turned me on to the Master and Commander series, mm. Patrick O'Brien. Um, it's a nice escape into historical fiction. And there's like twelve of them. Yeah, and there's like twelve or fourteen <laughs> books in the series, so you can just keep going and going. Oh my goodness. Those are the best because then you don't have to think about what am I going to read next. Yeah. You're just like, oh, anything by this author. Yeah. Decide mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Cool. Um, I think that I asked that one. Oh, oh it's my turn. Okay. Um, name one person or business that you'd like to nominate to be on this podcast. 
And no, no promises because there's a very high threshold for, you know, guess. So we can't promise that you're gonna that they're gonna get it. We only work with the fi- finest businesses in town. You guys have interviewed a lot of awesome people already. Um, it's, it's, we feel fortunate, and so not to any pressure, but mostly like this is shout outs to your accountant or whoever you think is really great um, in town. This I feel like this is the hardest question. This puts people. This would put me on a spot. Well, because so I'm, I'm giving you time. I'm giving you time. Going your through your podcast catalog in my mind. Um, cause like, if you hadn't talked to Atlas, I'd be like, you guys yeah. have to Atlas. Um, have you talked to Shanti Elixirs yet? No, not yet. No, but I've heard of them. Yeah. Shanti's great. So it's another local beverage producer. Um, they make Jun, which is like a kombucha. So mm-hmm. it being made with black tea and sugar, it's made with green tea and honey. Um, and her beverages are delicious if you've never tried them. So yeah, Shanti, it's a good one. Too. That's a great one. Yeah, I think I'd also um, shout out uh, our doctor's office, yes. who, is, uh, who actually turned me on to the Rockefeller Habits. Um, I want to make sure I get the name right. Integrative Family Medicine of Asheville. Mm-hmm. Integrative it's Family Organization. We've been going to them for seven years. Wow. So almost since we've lived in Asheville. Um, and they're fantastic. Very holistic. Mm. So guided us as business owners as well with stress management. <laughs> We've got a lot of really cool neighbors at the ramp studios. Mm. Um, so spice Walla, um, astral, astral. Yeah. How cool is that? In year. Yeah. Uh, strength ratio is a new gym in town. Um, mm. South building is full of artists. And Joe, make- Joe's stuff. Joe's, yeah, Joe's cheap stuff. Joe's. And the STEAM lab. So UNCA has. Um, oh, yeah. Yes. So it's one of the few uh, universities in the country that incorporates art into their STEM programming. I think there are more now, but at the time it was one of, you know, just a few. Cool. So, um, yeah, they do some really, they can build anything. Yeah. And they've definitely been a great neighbor to us. They've helped um, make some different parts for our bottling line that have made it more efficient. Mm. Um, they've done some really cool like metal carve outs for us. Um, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's a French ranch. Ranch is down there. Mm-hmm. French ranch Have you guys talked to them? Not yet. Not yet. They're, they seem like a big deal. USA today or something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. that's not insignificant. What a, what a year. Yeah. Yeah. What a year. Cool. Thank you. That you guys, that is two thumbs up from us. Um, some <laughs> shout outs. Will be reach if you're listening. Any one of those businesses will be reaching out. Our PR team, us, um, cool. And then how about the? And this is a hard one, but the thing that you miss most from a pre-COVID world. Hmm. For me, it's hugs. Hmm. Hugger, um, and that's one of my love languages: is physical affection. Um, even just like touching somebody on, you know, the back of the shoulder. So that's been really hard. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I'm, I'm going to uh, buck your question and say that I'm, I'm just working on embracing all the silver linings post COVID. Mm. That's, that's honestly how I think I would answer the question. I'll tell you what, what I thought the answer might've been is like the feeling of you guys sitting in the cheap seats in your own kind of brewery 
and mm-hmm. seeing the room alive with people and a band and everyone having a good time and kids and like I can just imagine that yeah. world and because it was well, it's literally the last thing I remember yeah. of it. And that's something that I don't know. That's something I miss the most. I think is just being able to go out and it's not necessarily even the food or the the thing that I'm consuming itself, but like just being around people in that kind of setting in a bar or in a restaurant. It's like. <laughs> Oh, one of my favorite things. It's yeah. it's my pastime. Yeah. <laughs> my, like, yeah, love it. Yeah. yeah. We, um, we've, um, kind of like reopened our tap room a little bit. We've been open a few weekends. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had some of our regulars come in and, you know, we, we're so lucky because we have so much space in the tap room. We have a lot of space for spreading out tables and we have really high ceilings and they were sitting at a high top near a production area and they were like, this is just so nice to come and have a beverage and relax and just to like feel somewhat normal. Mm. And I just, I felt really glad that we could provide that experience for them. You know, yeah. just I think people are just trying to find these little pockets of normal. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely, yeah, definitely different than our, mm-hmm. our anniversary weekend with a packed house. Packed house. Great sure. performance. Uh, do you remember the names of those bands? I can't remember. I know I could do a deep scroll onto Instagram to probably find them. Do you remember the bands that played? Yeah. So, um, uh, on Saturday it was, uh, JJ hips, um, modern strangers and life like water. Got it. Life like water had a vibe that I'm not sure I've ever really heard before. Yeah, they're fantastic. We've had them play in our space multiple times. um, And they, they actually just had their first album come out earlier. Amazing. Yeah. Cool. And then whoever was the cover band, I I heard just two acts, whoever the cover band slash originals, maybe before them was also very fun, like a a very fun. Yeah, that that was Modern Strangers. Modern Strangers. Very fun. Cool. Mm -hmm. Last question. Is it me? Is it you? I think it's you. Cool. Last question. Um, no, it's definitely you. I, remember I asked pre-COVID world. Oh, okay. Doesn't matter. Anyways, <laughs> last question is, uh, if we had a magic wand or someone in our audience had a magic wand, what would be the one thing you would ask for in this moment? Um, it can be a chicken sandwich or <laughs> world peace, whatever you prefer. <laughs> and we will not be judging if you want a chicken sandwich. <laughs> I mean, people have answered this question in so many different ways. Yeah. That's all I'm trying to say. Magic one. That's. Yeah, I mean, I would make this pandemic go away. <laughs> uh, people are dying every day. It's it's awful. Yeah. It's awful for the economy. Um, yeah, I think that's that's what I would pick. I I think what's really interesting about this pandemic moment is also just, um, I think it's created this atmosphere and this opportunity for change that's been needed. So not just, I think a lot of people have reflected that they were like, go, 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 hustle, hustle, hustle. And people have recognized like the need to slow down and in slowing down, I think we can address some of the more um, systematic changes that are needed. So 
I think, you know, when we reflect back on this moment in history, this opportunity for to really address systemic racism, to really address some of the equity issues, to really address some of our health care problems. I mean, it's really highlighted so many of um, things that could be improved upon. Um, and so I think it's just like David was saying, like, the silver linings, the silver linings are that we have a, we have an opportunity and a moment to, to maybe really push change, um, in a bigger way than we've been able to before. Yeah. Here, here. Dang. So the, we'll just let those marinate for one more Mississippi. Hmm. And now uh, for the final, final, final question. If our listening audience were to want to connect with you on the World Wide Web, their phones, their computers, how might they do it? So they can visit our website, which is gingersrevenge.com, or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at gingersrev. Thank you so much for talking with us this morning. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you guys. We've enjoyed it. Mm -hmm.